Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fair Voice. I'm Hannah Syriac, your host. Happy Sunday. So it's the week before General Conference. I know we're all very excited to hear what our prophets and apostles have to say. Please make sure to watch General Conference next weekend. It'll be great. Invite your friends and family to watch it along with you. It's a fantastic weekend every single year. I wanted to begin today's podcast with a preview to a special announcement that I'll be making next Sunday. So to let you know, this podcast will drop down to one episode per week, but there's a very good reason as to why. I'm not going to tell you what the reason is as to why quite yet, but just rest assured, lots of content will be coming from me. Actually, more content will be coming from me than just this podcast. It's a very exciting project, and I am looking forward to it being a thing, for lack of a better term. So please be excited for that. Um, Details were figured out this past weekend, so it should be amazing. With that being said, please remember to share this podcast. This podcast will come out every single Sunday at 8 a.m. Mountain Time from here on out, which will make it so that this podcast can have better content, etc. But also, also, so I can give you even more special content of different varieties. If you cannot tell, I am very excited. I'll I'll be able to share it with you next week. So hang tight. It'll be very, very exciting, and I'm sure you will love it. This is just a reminder that General Conference is next weekend, October 3rd and 4th, 2020. So this will be a digital-only conference, and you can view it on the Church of Jesus Christ org. You can view it on the BYU radio, several other platforms. Um, you can go to broadcast.churchofjesuschrist.org to watch it. I highly recommend that you watch it. This is where our prophets and apostles speak to us as well as our general church leaders. And I know that I learn so many important lessons whenever I listen to them speak. I'm very excited about that. And in the spirit of that, we're going to open up today's podcast. One of my favorite talks as a way to preview general conference. I did this on the last episode, as you know. So I'm pulling up one of my favorite talks from April 2020 conference. It was a fantastic conference. This talk is called Spiritually Defining Memories by Elder Neil L. Anderson. And the reason I like this talk so much is I like likening my experience to that of Joseph Smith's, especially within the first vision. And that's what Elder Anderson sets the talk up as saying. Um, He says about Joseph Smith's vision, In his difficult hours, Joseph's memory reached back nearly two decades to the certainty of God's love for him and the events that welcomed in the long-foretold restoration. Reflecting on his spiritual journey, Joseph said, I don't blame anyone for not believing my history. If I had not experienced what I have, I would have not believed it myself. End quote. But the experiences were real, and he never forgot or denied them, quietly confirming his testimony as he moved to Carthage. Quote, I am going like a lamb to the slaughter, he said, but I am calm as a summer's morning. I have a conscience void of offense towards God and towards all men, end quote. Elder Anderson transitions into talking about how we all have these spiritually defining memories that we can turn back onto to Make sure that we remember God's love for us in times when our testimony gets quite difficult. My personal spiritual defining memory is a moment of pure conversion for me. I had long since struggled with several different sins. I had long since struggled with whether or not to believe in the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. And I opened up Moroni 741, which is to this day one of my favorite verses in the Book of Mormon. And... When I read this verse, which I will read aloud to you too, I felt God's love for me perfectly and I felt an overwhelming testimony that what I needed to do was to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and build up the kingdom of Zion. And this verse reads, And what is it that ye shall hope for? Behold, I say unto you that ye shall have hope through the atonement of Christ and the power of his resurrection to be raised unto life eternal, and this because of your faith in him according to the promise. End quote. 
this is my spiritually defining memory that I turn back onto. When things in my life get so difficult that I cannot perceive God's love for me in a current moment, I turn back to that account, which I have written down several different times. I wrote it down pretty soon after it happened, and I write it down a couple different times a year. I turn back and I read my own account of that spiritual experience, and I feel God's love for me, and I see how there are, at different points in my life, different aspects of that very poignant spiritual experience stand out to me. In that sense, I understand Joseph Smith's first vision in a lot of different ways. Then, Elder Anderson in this talk continues to talk about other people's spiritually defining memories. I'm going to read one of our beloved prophet, President Nelson. Years ago, an elderly stake patriarch with two failing heart valves pleaded for then Dr. Russell M. Nelson to intervene, although at the time there was not a surgical solution for the damaged second valve. Dr. Nelson finally agreed to do the surgery. Here are President Nelson's words. After relieving the obstruction of the first valve, we exposed the second valve. We found it to be intact, but so badly dilated that it can no longer function as it should. While examining this valve, a message was distinctly impressed upon my mind. Reduce the, circum the circumference of the ring. I announced that message to my assistant. The valve tissue will be sufficient if we can effectively reduce the ring towards its normal size. But how? A picture came vividly to mind showing how stitches could be placed to make a pleat here and a tuck there. I still remember that mental image, complete with dotted lines where sutures should be placed. The repair was completed as diagrammed in my mind. We tested the valve and found the leak to be reduced remarkably. My assistant said, it's a miracle. The patriarch lived for many years. Dr. Nelson had been directed and he knew that God knew that he had been directed. That line, he knew that God knew that he had been directed. When it comes down to it, we don't need external validation for our own religious and spiritual experiences outside of the comforting influence of the Holy Spirit. These experiences are highly personal and we know whether or not they happened. For me, faith in my Savior Jesus Christ often involves having faith in the miracles that I see in my life and recognizing that others don't necessarily see them as miracles. Others might see them as a combination of everything falling into place at exactly the right time, a pure coincidence, luck, orchestration of people's human agency, determinism, whatever explanation that they offer. And that's totally fine because I know that God knows that he directs me. And I know that he testifies to me of my spiritual experiences. Then Elder Anderson talks about how we have been instructed by the prophet President Nelson to learn how we hear him. As President Nelson says, in the coming days, it'll be impossible to survive without personal revelation. President Nelson's words were, I invite you to think deeply and often about the about this key question. How do you hear him? I also invite you to take steps to hear him better and more often. And then Elder Anderson says about this, we hear him in our prayers, in our homes, in the scriptures, in our hymns, as we worthily partake of the sacrament, as we declare our faith, as we serve others, and as we attend the temple with fellow believers. Spiritually defining moments come as we prayerfully listen to general conference and as we better keep the commandments. And children, these experiences are for you as well. Remember, Jesus did teach and minister unto the children, and the children did speak great and marvelous things. And he goes on to say, while we cannot choose the timing of receiving these defining moments, President Henry B. Eyring gave this counsel in our preparation. Tonight and tomorrow night, you might ponder and pr pray and ponder, asking the questions, did God send a message that was just for me? Did I see his hand in the, my life or the lives of my family? Faith, obedience, humility, and real intent open the windows of heaven. I love these words, and I find them to be true. I find that sometimes we are lost and confused, and our faith seems to be hanging on by a thread. And we become frustrated because the answers don't always come when we want them to come. The comfort does not always come when we want it to come. 
the spiritual experiences don't always make themselves manifest and we feel entirely alone. But as we take one step into the light of Christ, as we take one step and just have faith that light will be there again and remember our spiritually defining memories, I think we know that things will get better. I had a conversation with a friend earlier this week about the same subject, about what to do when you feel like everything continually gets worse and that you get lost. It's hard to have these feelings of depression and anxiety, and my mind is turned back to Elder Holland's talk like a broken vessel. And in that talk, Elder Holland explains that at periods of our lives, we'll experience depression so earth-shattering that we might not be able to see what step to take next. We might not be able to know exactly how to remedy the situation. But as Elder Holland says, Whatever your struggle, my brothers and sisters, mental or emotional or physical or otherwise, do not vote against the preciousness of life by ending it. Trust in God. Hold on in his love. Know that one day the dawn will break brightly and all shadows of mortality will flee. Though we may feel we are like a broken vessel, as the psalmist says, we must remember that the vessel is in the hands of the divine potter. Broken minds can be healed just the way that broken bones and broken hearts are healed. While God is at work making those repairs, the rest of us can help by being merciful, non-judgmental, and kind. I testify of the holy resurrection, that unspeakable cornerstone gift in the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. With the Apostle Paul, I testify that that which was sown in corruption will one day be raised in incorruption, and that which was sown in weakness will ultimately be raised in power. I bear witness of that day when loved ones whom we knew to have disabilities and mortality will stand before us glorified and grand, breathtakingly perfect in body and mind. What a thrilling moment that will be. I do not know whether we will be happier for ourselves that we have witnessed such a miracle or happier for them that they are fully perfect and finally free at last. Until that hour when Christ's consummate gift is evident to us all, may we live by faith, hold fast to hope, and show compassion one of another. End quote. I love these words of Elder Holland tying back into spiritually defining memories because there are so many instances in our lives where we will crave spiritual experiences that might not come when we want them to come. But if we write down our spiritually defining moments, especially the ones that we have in this upcoming general conference, and we pay attention to the whisperings of the Holy Spirit and we write those promptings down immediately, we can turn back to those moments. We can turn back to those memories. We can turn back to those feelings that we once had and know, like Alma says, that we can sing that song again. So I invite you, this general conference, to make sure that you write down the impressions of the Spirit. One thing that I love about the church as a worldwide organization is that our talks are available online following the conference. There's textual PDFs of them, and there's videos and audio. So you don't need to write down necessarily particular quotes that you like unless you feel prompted by the Spirit to do so. You can focus on what the Spirit is telling you. And that is something that I think is so beautiful. I think back to when the gospel of Jesus Christ was spread through oral tradition as opposed to through written text. And I can hardly imagine them trying to grasp onto every word because they knew that it was the word of the Lord. Going to synagogues in order to hear Isaiah, in order to hear Psalms, in order to hear the beautiful words of prophets and apostles. Whether they were Christian or Jewish, depending on the time that they were at. I can't hardly imagine how hard it would be to live day to day knowing that you did not necessarily have access to the word of the Lord except through oral tradition, except through a few people who had scrolls because you couldn't read or for whatever reason it is. 
But, brothers and sisters, we live in a time where we have words of prophets and apostles readily available to us, and where we have a divine opportunity to write down our spiritual impressions and to turn back to them each and every day as we go throughout our life, regardless of how we are feeling. So I just invite you to look for the ways that Jesus Christ wants you to change this general conference. It's really important to think about how we can leave each sacrament meeting, each scripture study, each prayer, each general conference, a new and changed person, someone who is holier in Jesus Christ, someone who is more charitable, more cheerful, kinder, someone who is able to do both the work of those who need to defend the church, but also the work of ministering to everyone around them. We need to have the perfect balance between compassion and righteousness, and that is achieved through promptings by the Holy Spirit whispering to us the things that we must do. And at this point in time, I would like to transition to the witnesses of the Book of Mormon. This is today's topic. Um, After this, we will have our question and answer segment. We have one extended question and one shorter question to cover this segment. So the witnesses section might be a little bit shorter than usual, but there are some powerful topics at hand, and we are having someone on next week to talk about the witnesses of the Book of Mormon. So this acts as an introduction to that amazing, amazing interview that we'll be doing next. The Book of Mormon is obviously one of the most important works of our religion, but one of the greatest evidences for the Book of Mormon, in my opinion, are the testimonies of the three and the eight witnesses. To introduce these before we talk about why these are a great testimony next week, I'm going to provide some background information on who these witnesses are and what they specifically experienced. The three witnesses are Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, and Martin Harris. They say that an angel of God appeared to them and they were able to see the Book of Mormon plates and they also heard that the Lord testified that Joseph Smith's transition was translated by the gift and power of God. This took place on June in June 1829. They never denied their witness. So they said that an angel appeared to them that they saw the Book of Mormon plates, and that they heard the voice of the Lord. Even though within these three people, you see some excommunications, you see some goings and coming backs, you see a lot of different faith transitions, they never denied their witness of the Book of Mormon. The eight witnesses are members of the Smith and Whitmer families. They were able to they were able to testify that Joseph Smith showed them the plates and they were able to the word that they use is heft the ancient artifact and examine its engravings. This means that they were able to feel the plates so that they knew that they weren't just golden plates that they weren't just iron plates masquerading as golden plates or something like that. They knew the material of these plates from its weight and they knew that they were actually Book of Mormon plates. Also, these members did not deny the testimony of the Book of Mormon. And what I want to do is I want to read some of the statements that these witnesses have made about the truth claims that they witnessed to. David Whitmer in 1881 says that I have never at any time denied that testimony or any part thereof, which has long since been published with that book as one of three witnesses. Those who know me best well know that I have adhered to that testimony and that no man may be misled or doubt my present views in regard to the same. I do now again affirm the truth of all my statements as then made and published. John Whitmer, Whitmer, one of the eight witnesses, said in 1876, Oliver Cowdery lived in Richmond, Montana, some 40 miles from here at the time of his death. I went to see him and was with him for some days 
previous to his demise. I have never heard him deny the truth of his testimony of the Book of Mormon under any circumstances whatever. Neither do I believe that he would have denied at the peril of his life. So firm was he that he could not be made to deny what he has affirmed to be a divine revelation from God. I have never heard that any one of the three or eight witnesses ever denied the testimony that they have borne to the Book of to the book as published in the first edition of the Book of Mormon. There are only two of the witnesses to that book now living. David Whitmer, one of the three, and John Whitmer, one of the eight. Our names have gone forth to all nations, tongues, and people as a divine revelation from God, and it will bring to pass the designs of God according to the declaration therein contained. So, we see here that they did not deny the witness of the Book of Mormon. Even though David Whitmer had left the church, he still affirmed his testimony. Oliver Cowdery described his testimony of the Book of Mormon in 1848 with the following words. I wrote with my own pen the entire Book of Mormon, save a few pages as it fell from the lips of the prophet Joseph, as he translated it by the gift and power of God, by the means of the Urim and Thummim, or as it is called by the book, Holy Interpreters. I beheld with my eyes and handled with my hands the gold plates from which it was transcribed. I also saw with my eyes and handled with my hands the holy interpreters. That book is true. Right before he died, Martin Harris said, The Book of Mormon is no fake. I know what I know. I have seen what I have seen, and I have heard what I have heard. I have seen the gold plates from which the Book of Mormon is written. An angel appeared to me and others and testified to the truthfulness of the record. And had I been willing to perjure myself and sworn falsely to the testimony I now bear, I could have been a rich man. But I could have not testified other than I have done and am now doing, for these things are true. The reason these testimonies are so pivotal to proving that the Book of Mormon is a true work by worldly standards, not just by spiritual standards, is because these witnesses act as an external validation for the claims of Joseph Smith. While I do firmly believe that no amount of evidence will convince someone that the Book of Mormon is true and that the only thing that will convince someone that the Book of Mormon is true is a genuine experience with the Book of Mormon wherein you are changed by its words to live a holier life, to live more like Jesus Christ, and you feel the power of that book itself. I don't think anything else can substitute that. But at the same time, I do think that these witnesses act as a way to show us how an external validation works for the Book of Mormon. These men could have profited off not believing in the Book of Mormon. They led really horrible lives, some of them. They moved all across the country. They sold everything that they had. They gave their entire lives to the development of the Book of Mormon. And for what? For what? For the earthly fame that they did not experience, for the earthly riches that they did not experience, for the persecution that they did experience, for what reason would someone sacrifice all material possessions for a book that they don't believe is true? Why would someone leave the church in which the book remains? and still testify of the truthfulness of that book? Why would someone be excommunicated from the church and still testify of the truthfulness of that book, save it be that they know that the Book of Mormon is true? One of the criticisms often levied against these witnesses of the Book of Mormon is that Martin Harris claimed that the eight witnesses never saw them and hesitated to sign that instrument for that reason, but they were persuaded to do it. Regarding this, Richard Lloyd Anderson writes, I'm going to switch the subject to the eight witnesses. And the eight witnesses of the Book of Mormon said that they had handled, the word is hefted, that's interesting, because in 1828, it probably had the connotation of measuring a weight. In other words, estimating the weight of something you are lifted. They saw the curious characters that had a connotation in a generation that knew Latin better than we do. Curi in Latin is care, and curious actually has as one of its senses in the 19th or 18th century of being carefully made or made with care. 
So they said, we saw those engravings. We looked at them carefully, saw that they were made with care, lifted the plates, turned over the leaves, etc. This is what Burnett says about that experience. And I want you to keep in mind what I have said about first and second hand. He says, Martin Harris said that he saw the plates only with his natural eyes and vision, never saw the plates with his natural eyes, only in vision or imagination, and that the eight witnesses never saw them and hesitated to sign that instrument for that reason, but they were persuaded to do that. There's a lot of ways to interpret that. One of them is that they never saw the plates at all. Others, that they saw the plates in a vision and didn't really handle them, and they were persuaded to make that statement. I'm not sure that the eight witnesses made that statement. All eight of them never made that statement. I've got something like 60 times where those witnesses say, essentially, yes, what I wrote in the Book of Mormon is true, end quote. The reason why I think that this particular instance is very fascinating is because we see that despite the criticism levied against the witnesses in the Book of Mormon, they continually reaffirm their testimony of what they wrote in the Book of Mormon, and they don't really have any social or fiscal or any sort of benefit that comes from it besides knowing that they will receive eternal life for being truthful to their testimony of the Book of Mormon. That's not a feasible or tangible evidence for them. If they wanted to, they could make a lot of money exposing Joseph Smith as a fraud, but the fact that they the fact that they didn't shows to me that Joseph Smith was not a fraud and that these witnesses were in fact true. I really like what Oliver Cowdery says in 1829, which is right after his experience as a witness of the Book of Mormon. About this, he says, It was a clear, open, beautiful day, far from any inhabitants in a remote field at the time when we saw the record, of which it has been spoken, brought, and laid before us by an angel, arrayed in glorious light, who ascend, descended, I suppose, out of the midst of heaven. Now, if this is human juggling, judgy. I think that that is the most salient point about the witnesses of the Book of Mormon. If this is human, judge it. But clearly it's not. Clearly it's divine. Clearly those who testify of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon, who testified that they saw the plates, who testified that they saw an angel, could have had the opportunity to lie in order to gain some sort of success, in order to gain some sort of revenge for excommunications, for feeling like they had to give up everything. But the fact that they didn't, the fact that they remained steadfast in their their testimony of the Book of Mormon shows to me perfectly that they believed what they had said about the Book of Mormon wholeheartedly. And they act as a beautiful witness for us as well. One of my favorite comparisons to make with this particular instance is to look back at the Gospel of John. So we're going to take a little metaphorical trip to the Gospel of John. Please open to John 20 verses 24 to 29 and I'll read them aloud to you. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, Thou art my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And nearly a perfect parallel to the Gospel of John, and nearly a perfect parallel to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we as disciples of Christ are called to believe despite the fact that we have not seen. We are called to rest upon the witnesses that we have had testify to us that the Book of Mormon is true, reading from verse 30 of John 20. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Then verse 31, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing you may have eternal life in his name.
Then, opening up to the introduction of the Book of Mormon we read, we all invite all men everywhere to read the Book of Mormon, to ponder in their hearts the message it contains, and then to ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, if the book is true. Those who pursue this course and ask in faith will gain a testimony of its truth and divinity by the power of the Holy Spirit. Those who gain this divine witness from the Holy Spirit will also come to know by the same power that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, that Joseph Smith is his revelator and a prophet in these last days, and that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the Lord's kingdom once again established on the earth, preparatory to the second coming of the Messiah, end quote. I like the witnesses as a parallel to the gospel because we, we know from Luke 1, 1 to 4, that part of a gospel writing process involves talking to witnesses. We know that we have witnesses such as Martin Harris and Oliver Cowdery that at the same time saw the plates. They knew Joseph Smith. They knew him and they had a testimony of him as a prophet and the prophetic work that he performed through the Book of Mormon. That did not change in the same way that the testimony of those gospel authors did not change. They still believed that Jesus was the Christ and they wrote their accounts so that we might believe on their words because we will not see right now. We will, we will not be able to hold the plates. I don't have them. I don't think the conspiracy theories that people have of the church having them in a locked vault are necessarily true. I, I don't believe we have the plates with us right now. I, I believe that we have to believe on the words of the Book of Mormon because of the witnesses and because the book itself is a witness to Jesus Christ in an almost perfect parallel. The Book of Mormon takes the entire establishment of the New Testament and parallels it nearly perfectly in a way that I think is orchestrated by God. And I think that that's what we have to, that's what we have to believe. And I want to close this discussion before we go to the Q&A session by reading you something that I wrote the other day. The greatest evidence for the Book of Mormon is not any inscription you can find in Mesoamerica or any archaeological feat that transforms our academic understanding, but it is the witness that it gives that Jesus is the Christ and its ability to change you. We read from the prophet Joseph Smith as recorded in the history of the church 4461. That's 4461. I told the brethren that the Book of Mormon was the most correct of any book on earth and the keystone of our religion, and a man would get nearer to God by abiding its precepts than by any other book. End quote. We also read. In the words of Joseph Smith, I did translate the Book of Mormon by the gift and power of God, and it is before the world, and all the powers of earth and hell can never rob me of the honor of it, end quote. I find that these quotes and the testimonies that we have seen of the Book of Mormon are quite compelling. As we continue to talk about historicity on this podcast, as we continue to explore some good evidences for the Book of Mormon, may we never forget that the greatest evidence for the Book of Mormon is the way that it changes you. I have been changed by the Book of Mormon, and I am changed by it every single day as I read it. I know that there is something different about that book. I know that the witnesses that exist of that book allow us to experience eternal life here on earth. I know that we can come closer to God, in the words of Joseph Smith, by abiding its precepts. And I'm grateful that Joseph Smith translated this book with his prophetic powers in a way that we might not completely understand right now, but I know it's from God. And I'm really grateful for that knowledge. I'd like to transition into the question and answer portion of today's episode. Today's first question reads, um, Dear Hannah, do you personally have a, a spiritual witness of its historicity, its being the Book of Mormon, or do you have a spiritual witness of the truth of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and that leads you to the knowledge of the historicity of the Book of Mormon? That's the, that's the question. This is a very fascinating question for me, and it took me a while to ponder how to best answer this question. 
In my experience, um, right, because I do enjoy academia quite a bit. I'll be honest with you. I love reading scholarship. I love textual criticism in particular, which is looking at how a text evolves and changes over time, comparing different manuscripts, trying to understand word choice and other things like that, understanding the history of a text. I love that. I love exegesis that's my preferred method of reading the scriptures i'm a philologist which means i love looking at individual words so i do have a rather scholarly approach to the scriptures at times but as i've said uh, in other places too i don't deny that the holy spirit is my companion with doing these things so the question is very interesting and this is a question that's asked of a lot of religious people which is basically which hatches first, the chicken or the, the egg? Do you think that the Book of Mormon is historical because you have a testimony of it? Or do you think that the Book of Mormon is historical which led you to have a testimony of it? And I don't think that there is a right or wrong answer to this, to be honest with you. I think that everyone will have different experiences and different answers that lead them to perceiving truth in different ways. Um, I think that that's one of the beautiful gifts of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ is that we recognize as is taught in a lot of different places in Doctrine and Covenants, that we have different methods of learning available to us. And these methods of learning can enable us to learn truth in different ways. So I'm going to break the question down a little bit further. I'm going to push the question to its boundaries in a different way. S to address historicity, which is what I will address first, I do think that there is legitimacy for historicity developed through evidence and a witness of the spirit in conjunction one with another but for me personally evidence preceded a witness of the spirit when evaluating an ancient text there are many different questions you have to ask about a text you have to ask who is the author who is the audience why was it written was what time does it written at what what corroboration do we have for these details and for me the most convincing evidence of the historical plausibility of the Book of Mormon was Nahum. That was an evidence that we talked about a bit on last episode of this podcast. However, at the same time, that evidence did not show me 100% historical accuracy. That evidence allowed me to determine historical plausibility. What I like to do is examine the evidences that we do have, which I believe we have a lot of evidences for the Book of Mormon. What I do, what I did to determine whether or not the Book of Mormon was historical, which I think is a different question than whether or not the Book of Mormon is true, is I examined the evidence that I saw, determined that I thought it was plausible, especially based on Nahum, and proceeded down that route. I saw too many parallels between Semitic language structure. I saw too many word print studies that show that the authors of each book have a unique voice, which shows historical plausibility in my mind. After engaging in that process, I determined that I needed to know whether or not the Book of Mormon is true. While I did not 100% have knowledge of Book of Mormon historicity, because, because I had examined the evidence that I had seen, but had not, in my mind, seen as much evidence as I would have liked for a book such as I don't know, Ovid's Metamorphoses or another work like that that has a solid manuscript tradition. But then I took a step back and I saw that so many details of the Book of Mormon corroborate with what we have found about Mesoamerica. And I determined that it's possible that it could be a historical record. But for me, the determination of truth was not necessarily through that evidence. And there's a reason I distinguish between the two. And this is a very functional reason. The Book of Mormon could very well be historical and still not be true. I think those are two different questions. Whether or not the Book of Mormon is historical, for me, if the Book of Mormon is historical, it logically follows that it is true. But for others, that's not necessarily the case. It could be the case that the Book of Mormon is an ancient record, but it doesn't have import on your life. Some people don't believe the Bible. Will they go out and say that the Bible is not historical? Not necessarily. For me, the, the questions are very different. So my testimony of the Book of Mormon being a true record, which also is in conjunction to its ancient record nature, came from a witness of the Holy Spirit. What I like to do in order to determine the truth of all things is to look at the available evidence that we have, look at what knowledge we do have, and examine that through study, but also through faith.
everyone works from presuppositions. Everyone has a level of bias that is involved with what they do. I'm of the opinion that instead of removing the bias, which John Hopkins University came out with a study that shows that you can't effectively remove the bias, what is better to do is to confront the biases that you do have, address them, and be able to show how those biases interplay with your truth claims and your perception of things. What I mean by that is I will never be of the type to say that I'm starting from a place of no assumptions, of no knowledge, or no anything like that, because that's not true. My experiences have led me to believe certain things about the world. My experiences have led me to believe different things than you have been led to believe. But what I can do is I can think deeply about how my own biases and experiences impact what I read and what I think. I can think deeply about whether or not I want the Book of Mormon to be true. And in my case, whether or not I wanted the Book of Mormon to be true is a very interesting question. At the time that I read the Book of Mormon, I desperately wanted it to be false. I wanted to be able to denounce it. I wanted to be able to say that it wasn't true. But on a December night, December 17th to be exact, I had a fiery witness from the Holy Spirit that the Book of Mormon was in fact true, and I can't deny that. I can't change that. That's something that I will never be able to forget, and that's one of my experiences, but that experience isn't in isolation. It's not like I woke up one day and was like, the Book of Mormon is true. No, it took a lot of study for me. I had to study out the truth claims that it makes. I had to study it out from a theological perspective, from a historical perspective, from all of the available perspectives that I have. I find this question really interesting. Do I personally have a spiritual witness of the historicity? Yes, I do. But the next question, or do you have a spiritual witness of the truth of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and that leads you to the knowledge of the historicity of the Book of Mormon? I I can understand that perspective. Um, I personally had a testimony of the Book of Mormon historicity before I had a testimony of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. For me, it naturally followed that I would explore the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints because I had a testimony of the Book of Mormon. But I think for some people, it could go the other way. It depends on your interests, right? Because I was really interested in the theological claims of the Book of Mormon, whether or not they were philosophically consistent. Because for historical nature of texts, I do think that it is important to evaluate them. I do think we need to have some evidences for a text being historical and ancient, but at the same time, we're forgetting that these texts are 2,000, 3,000 years old. It's a bit hard to say with any degree of certainty that we know the timing of things exactly, except it be through revelation, in my opinion, which is why I think we have revelation. When I talk about the historicity of the Book of Mormon, what I'm really speaking towards is the historical plausibility, the historical probability, not historical definiteness, because I think by any sort of secular standards, that's what we can determine for any ancient text is historical plausibility, as we were not there. But we have empirical evidence that points us towards that. So for me personally, long answer made short. I had a testimony of the Book of Mormon before I had a testimony of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but that's because my testimony of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints came from trying to construct a worldview, if that makes sense. I began with the presupposition that there was no God, and I worked my way through different arguments for the existence of God, for uh, sorry, against the existence of God, what type of God would exist if God did exist, and I came to some very basic beliefs about natural theology and natural law that drew me in to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints because I saw that the God there, the God described there, was compatible with the beliefs that I felt were most logically consistent. However, that was not enough for me. I also needed a spiritual witness to validate the truth that I had believed that I had discovered. And it is through my spiritual witnesses that I have been able to continue forward. And and I'll define spiritual witness for you too. I'll explain a little bit about what that means. For me, spiritual witnesses are, there. there's two categories. There's the big revelation where God tells me something pivotal about my life because I'm the type of person who needs that. 
or there are the little strokes of inspiration that send me down different paths. There are little times in my life where I have moments of connection, where God tells me that something is true or that I need to look into a particular text or into a particular work of scholarship. And it's something that would be very random for me to look at. I wouldn't, I wouldn't assume to look, I wouldn't assume to look there. I would just have ignored it. But because I received a spiritual witness, I look there and then that's when I most often determine truth. I've had many experiences like that. So for me, spiritual witnesses act as evidences for believing in God, but more importantly, as pathways for me to explore the existence of God, the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon, etc. I find that those things are so incredibly important. And I am definitely an emotionally based person. And I'm not saying this as a way for people to critique me. I am just saying that I, I do care about how I feel about something. Because for me, my thoughts are very much in line with my emotions. And the natural response to this would be, what about cognitive bias? Aren't you just thinking things because you feel like they're true or you feel like they would be good? And I understand that that, that's the perspective that some take, but I also don't feel like things are good if they're illogical or irrational. So it, it doesn't quite work like that for me. And I do still, I still require critical thinking through my emotions in order to understand why I have the emotions I do, whether or not these emotions are leading me down a path of truth or or whether or not I'm deceiving myself. So I, I think there's a lot of introspection that needs to be done with questions like this, but this is my perspective on that and I hope that that was helpful. I think that everyone can determine their own epistemology, their own way of looking at the world. I could best be described as a rationalist. I'm not exactly an empiricist. I understand the empirical view and I do think that is an important view to have. I'm definitely more of a rationalist though. I'm also a platonic idealist. Many of my perceptions of the universe come from philosophically consistent systems. So that's really what I care about. Um, and I find that that's important. And I'm not of the type to believe that there is a monolithic way to perceive the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I do believe that there are doctrines that we need to believe. I believe that there are truth claims that are integral and inseparable from the church. But at the same time, I do believe we all come to the church with different ways of thinking, different ways of perceiving the universe, and these different ways of perceiving the universe can lead us to the same truth. So that's really my answer for that question. It was a very fascinating question. I enjoyed thinking about it a lot. The second question that I will answer today reads, Dear Hannah, what do I say to someone who denies the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon but has not read the Book of Mormon? That's a great question. I do feel like that comes up quite a bit. I have a lot of friends and I'm so I'm from the east. I'm from Boston, Massachusetts area and I have interacted with a lot of different individuals who will claim that the Book of Mormon is false but will claim to not have read the Book of Mormon. I find that this position is quite difficult. Um, I don't claim that something is false if I'm not familiar with it. I did when I was younger, I'll be honest with you. When I was younger, I would just say that certain religious texts of other religions were wrong. And I have since repented of that in the sense that I no longer say that a text is outright wrong, especially if I'm not familiar with it. I try to critically engage with the text and show that there are certain parts of it that are true, there are certain parts of it that I believe to be false, and explain why I came to that. So I try to think critically about these different texts. And this goes back to our earlier discussion about how I said there's a difference between the Book of Mormon being historical and the Book of Mormon being true. I do think in order for the Book of Mormon to be true, it has to be historical. We've talked about Book of Mormon historicity on this podcast before, where I've cited many articles that say this same point, especially Stephen Smoot's article that asserts that you have to believe that the Book of Mormon is historical if you believe it's true, because that's the way that the book presents itself, and that's the way that Joseph Smith understood it. But at the same time, when someone says that the Book of Mormon is not true and they have not read it, I think that that 
is an example of a time where you should encourage them to read it for no other purpose but determining whether or not it's true. What I typically say to people like that is, I respect you, I respect your opinion. At the same time, I do think that it's better to critically engage the material before you develop an opinion on that. And I offer to read one book for them that I have not read before, especially if there's someone of a different religion than me, as opposed to someone who is agnostic or atheist. I offer to read one of their religious texts and to critically engage with it as they critically engage with the Book of Mormon. The reason I do this is because I find that people are more willing to respond in this way. I find that we are able to have a more uplifting discussion, that we are able to see truth together more clearly, but also to make the salient point that I don't believe we should be hypocritical on this matter. I don't believe we should immediately denounce things as completely false without reading them and without engaging with the other side or with a side that might not be completely the same as ours. And when we when we are dismissive of people who don't read the Book of Mormon and we just immediately characterize them in a particular way and don't engage and don't try to encourage them to read it to find out whether or not it's true, then I think we are doing a disservice. I think the best the best approach to this is to encourage them to read it, not necessarily to be converted. I do hope genuinely that everyone joins the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints because I honestly want everyone to experience eternal life. That's that's my whole thing there. So I do I do genuinely have that desire for people, but at the same time, I believe that in order to determine truth, in order to practice what we preach, we need to encourage people to confront truth claims through greater study and faith. We cannot do it on faith alone. I do believe we have to study things out. I believe that blind faith is never really blind, right? I do believe that you can see things beyond what you can see, but in order for you to see something, you have to know that there's the potential at the very least for something to be there, if that makes sense. We don't believe in God. Someone telling us that there could be a God and that God could have particular attributes. We have to have some level of evidence or knowledge or a theory or idea, whatever you would like to say, in order to have the potential to believe that God is true. If there was, if there is a God and you don't know about the concept of God, you can't believe in the concept of God without knowing the concept of God, if that makes sense. So I think with these questions, we need to be very charitable and we need to be very kind towards these individuals. We need to express encouragement and enthusiasm for them reading the Book of Mormon. But at the same time, if they would like to continue down the path of not believing that the Book of Mormon is true, I believe we have a Christ-like duty to love them, to be kind to them, and to help them achieve the best things in their life that they can achieve. That's what I would say to that question. So coming up next on the podcast, next week's questions. So we have two questions for next week. We're going to talk about Book of Mormon plagiarisms, and I'm not going to spoil the question that comes after that. It was a very long and extended question. I'm very excited to answer that. We're also going to talk about Book of Mormon evidences and witnesses again, and we're going to continue down that path. And I will make a special announcement, and it'll be fantastic. You will be so excited, hopefully, I am praying, to hear this special announcement. It will be great and fantastic. And I said that like six times, but it'll be super awesome. And this is a reminder that if you have questions for me that you would like me to answer on the podcast, please submit them to h-s-e-a-r-i-a-c at fairmormon.org. That is h-s-e-a-r-i-a-c at fairmormon.org. I'm so looking forward to reading your questions. I have loved doing this so far. It's been fantastic to get to know some of you better via email. I hope you have an amazing Sunday. I hope you watch General Conference and don't worry, we'll talk about General Conference too. I'm really excited. Much love always. Seize the day. Have a great Sunday and remember Christ in every thought. This was Farrah Mormon and I'm Hannah and I'm signing off.